0: Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and I just want to say Happy New Year to everybody. This year has been really great for the show, Um, great personally for me. I I had a baby this year, and great for the show because, yeah, well, we're reaching tens of thousands of people, and um, we've done about 50 episodes this year. It's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun, and I'm learning a great deal. I hope that you are all learning a great deal, as well. Um, someone brought it to my attention that we are in the top two percent of all podcasts in the world right now. There are 2.75 million podcasts, so top two percent. means there's still you know thousands of podcasts that are bigger than us, but this is really um, pretty incredible. The other things I want to tell you about were that we have three interns working with the show, um, incredible young people. They are running the social media and they are also starting a a new segment called Ask an Economist, Key Terms in About Five Minutes. And that's on our website. You can find that at acorrectionpodcast.com. And there's about a dozen terms up and we're going to be adding more terms all the time. So, um, yeah, just really wonderful stuff happening. I'd love it if if you have any money this year, if you could support the show. A couple of years ago, I asked for some support and, and that was really helpful. And I'm asking again, um, if you go to our website, acorrectionpodcast.com slash subscribe, you can see that you can become a monthly supporter or you can just make a one-time donation. What we'll be using the money for is... To pay for the, the website, the upkeep of the website, which is not a lot of money, but also um, any new equipment, books that we that we get resources. But most importantly, um, now that I I have a kid, a young child, I'm still doing interviews, which takes you know a lot of time. But that's totally great. I'm having a good time doing it. But I'm really really having a hard time with the editing. So we'd like to hire someone to edit the show. So our goal is to raise $12,000 this year. We are, well, we are nowhere close to that. We have just a couple hundred dollars in the account, but um, all the money will go to the show and go to paying somebody to edit the show. So if you have a family foundation or know someone with a family foundation, please um, send us an email because, and you can find our email at the website because we are in the process of getting a nonprofit to be our fiscal sponsor, which means that you can, you can have this be tax deducted. Otherwise, you can just make a donation to, to us at, um, again, acorrectionpodcast.com slash subscribe. And we would really appreciate it. It'll help us keep putting out the episodes. My goal is to keep putting out an episode a week, but uh, I think that'll only be possible if we can hire an editor. Anyway, um, have a wonderful new year, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are really excited to be joined by Gabriel Winant, who's an assistant professor of U.S. history at the University of Chicago. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to join you. Thank you. So today we are going to be talking about uh, labor unions and strikes. And I want to I wanna start by by talking about a couple of, of new terms which have entered the lexicon. One is strike-tober and the other is the great resignation. And I'm wondering if you talk about what both of those terms are and how, if at all, they're related to each other.
1: Definitely. So strike-tober is a kind of a nickname that popped up a couple months ago in October when there were a bunch of worker strikes that were just kind of starting to pop off or had just happened or seemed like they were about to happen, Uh, you often can see a strike on the horizon because a group of workers has to go through a process to begin a strike. Typically, they have to vote on it and there's a negotiation that has to break down. And so when it seemed like a lot of strikes were starting to happen, this is exciting to lots of folks who care about the labor movement because we have been for a generation at a very low level of strike activity, which started to turn around in 2018, 2019, I'll come back to this in a second, and then fell off basically down to zero again during 2020, during the pandemic. And so a lot of us were wondering, given all of the ways that the pandemic was really a kind of workplace problem, are workers going to go back on strike? Is there going to be a kind of return of the strike to 2018, 2019 levels, and hopefully to something significantly beyond that, since that was still way below historical levels, although higher than it had been in previous years. So that takes us to the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation is a term that similarly has kind of popped up in recent months to describe how workers are not staying in jobs or are not accepting job offers at the rates and at the wages that employers would like. So again, for a very long time, really going back even to the 1970s, so the last 30 or 40 years, wages, workers pay has been stagnant, has not really been rising particularly. There's a lot of complicated factors that go into this that we can talk more about. But one part of it, one one thing that means uh, is that in general, employers have had their pick of workers. So if an employer has a job opening, typically more than one person wants that job and the employer doesn't have to make a very good offer in terms of wages and benefits and working conditions because they're going to be able to get someone to do it. Now, in the past few months, we've seen that employers are finding nobody is taking their job offers at the wages that they want to pay. And that moreover, workers are quitting their jobs at high rates. So this is actually something economists measure called the quit rate. Uh, And the quit rate right now is higher than it's been uh, in at least 20, 25 years, possibly longer. Uh, So more workers are quitting than ever before. And what that means is people must have some confidence that they can find something better, right? You only quit your job if you're pretty sure you're gonna be able to find a better possibility. And these two things are connected to each other fundamentally because uh, that's to say the quit rate Strike striketober because What we're talking about overall is a kind of balance of power in the labor market. So labor markets are not exactly like other kinds of markets, you know, the automobile market or, you know, the food market or any kind of stock market, any kind of market. Labor markets are a little different in an important way because labor is people, right? Labor is us. We all, unless you're independently wealthy, which is a pretty small minority of people who can survive without doing work, we all have to do it. Our survival depends on it. And that means that we tend to have different priorities often in labor markets and to relate to the people we're competing with in labor markets, that's to say other workers who might want the same jobs, and the people who we're trying to have transactions with in labor markets, that's to say employers, we tend to relate to them somewhat differently than we do you know, other people who are trying to buy, buy a car when we're buying a car or car dealers one fundamental thing about the labor market is because it's so fundamental or it's so fundamental to you know, our lives at the most basic level, it always there's always questions of kind of balance of power in the labor market, right? Because again, it's so defining of what your life is going to be like. And sometimes in, in, in periods when the quit rate is very low, that's to say when employers can find whoever they want, for any job at whatever wages they wanna pay, that means employers have power and, employ- and workers have very little power. That's called often a, um, a slack labor market or a loose labor market. And in a, in a loose labor market, when workers are very replaceable, they're not gonna push the envelope with their boss, right? They're not gonna ask for a raise, most likely, because again, they know there's someone behind them who would take their job for, for less. And they're much less likely to take any kind of risk. Now, organizing a union, going on strike, that's a risk, right? It's it's a bet that you and the other workers around you, if you stick together, you can uh, come out ahead of where you are now if you confront your employer as a group. And w- workers become much more likely to take that risk when they have a sense that it would be hard for the employer to replace them, right? That when, in other words, there's not a pool of people standing around ready to do their jobs for less than they're asking for, workers get a little bolder and they start to say, you know what? My boss really can't do without me. And you, and you know what? Our boss can't really do without us as a group. So if we were to walk out, they would really be in trouble. So let's try it, let's see what happens. And that's, that's the kind of core connection between the great resignation and striketober is that workers started to realize that it would be kind of hard for their bosses to replace them right now. And they should, they have a, they have a window of time, a kind of moment an opportunity to have some leverage on their employers and they should use it.
0: I see. I mean, one thing that's been curious to me is it's not just that people are quitting. You can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like it's not just that people are quitting because they can get another job. You know, we also see the labor force participation rate steadily going down since 2000. So I guess there's two questions here. One, how do we explain the fact that people are just leaving the labor force altogether and, and not necessarily coming back to work? And two, look, if I didn't work for a month, I might, I'd be homeless. So one of the things I've been thinking about is how, what are people actually doing to make ends meet if they quit?
1: Yeah, so this is a really good question. And I don't think we necessarily have know all the answers to this yet. But just to take a step back, the labor force participation rate is the measurement of the percentage of the working age population that either has a job or is seeking a job, and so is therefore participating in some way in the labor market. And you're right, that rate um, has fallen steadily now for about a generation. So uh, it's worth, for context, uh, understanding that the labor force participation rate rose very significantly from about 1960 to 2000. And that was an effect of women entering the workforce. Right, There have always been some number of women in the, in the formal labor market, but um, after World War II, the, the number was pretty low as it had been for a long time. And basically the whole second half of the 20th century, there was a gradual increase in speeding up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s of women entering the workforce. Now, as you say, since the year 2000, that rate has been falling. Uh, and in particular, I think this is important. After the 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession, it fell and got kind of stuck. Uh, at what we would see as a pretty low level now, even in our current situation, what I just described as a kind of tight labor market, where bosses are having a hard time finding workers who will work at the terms that they want, you would expect that to increase the labor force participation rate, right? Because if you just take a step, take a moment and think about it, bosses are having to offer higher wages in some situations than they would like to offer. Unemployment is really low and that should attract workers who have left the labor market back into it, right? It should pull them back in and that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, So to your question, what are people doing? How are they getting by if they're not working jobs? You know, I think we have a kind of combination of factors that are likely explained, can like, likely help us understand this. One is that um, over the last two years, there have been two quite significant kind of emergency expansions of the social safety net, one under Trump, one under Biden. And those did things like increase and extend unemployment benefits uh, in, and, you know, kind of cushion them with various other kinds of emergency supports around healthcare and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, housing assistance gave people cash directly, offered folks child tax credit. Uh, some of these may get extended and expanded in the bill that's currently before the Senate. We'll see. But it seems like those uh, measures actually had a very significant impact on household finances. And most households are reporting that they are actually financially in better shape than, in, you know, than you might think. So, there's a kind of social safety net effect here uh, that's probably interacting with just the accumulated exhaustion and outrage and fear of the pandemic to keep people out of, out of the workplace. Uh, I, you know, many, many, I mean, this is hard to pin down, but obviously millions of American workers, workers around the world had an experience in the pandemic of seeing that their boss doesn't care if they live or die. Right, I mean, just, uh, you know, many, many workplaces, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe abundantly clear to their workers, um, that they're concerned about their legal liability, that they're concerned about keeping business running in some form. And, you know, hopefully the workers live, but maybe they'll get COVID and die. We'll see. Uh, This was especially true in, um, you know, so-called frontline or essential industries. I mean, nursing homes, uh, which are enormous employers, Um, in slaughterhouses and meatpacking, right, there were stories about managers betting on how many workers would get COVID, like having a pool to bet on it. Uh, and, you know, that's the kind of extreme case, but I think many millions of workers across the country had kind of lesser version to that experience, just realizing, oh, my boss doesn't care. Um, and so I think where people have been able to figure it out financially in terms of, you know, maybe one partner has a job and the other just can't bear to go back yet, and maybe their finances are kind of okay because of the child tax credit, combinations like that, uh, I think, you know, folks are, have been kind of taking their time to go back to work.
0: What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to tell me where I'm wrong in the story, if I'm wrong. But, you know, we've been in a period of wage stagnation, as you said, for about a generation. And here's the story, as I understand it. But again, I want to know, I want to know if this is the right story. My understanding is the crisis of the 1930s of the depression was a crisis of inadequate demand. And so there are measures taken, the government passes laws to help booster demand, the strength in labor unions, and then we get to the period of the 1970s and you have stagflation. So you have stagnation in the GDP and inflation. And there's this feeling, well, the problem here is that labor has too much power and we've got to do something about that. And so there's neoliberalism and outsourcing and then wages come down. And we're in this really kind of rough period for the last 40 years where wages are, are, are stagnant or down for the bulk of the population. Is that the correct story? Yeah, I
1: mean, I, th- I think in, in broad strokes, yes. Uh, I mean, there's big academic debates about every point that you just made. Yeah. Uh, but I would basically agree with most of how you just described that. Um, and, you know, I think what it tells us is that, I mean, that story as you, as you narrated it, what it tells us Um, is a very challenging point, which is that there is probably not a stable equilibrium within capitalist societies within which workers can be making steady wage gains without it generating other kinds of macroeconomic effects that will trigger political resistance. And one of the main forms that that takes is inflation. So when you have, I mean, inflation is a very complicated subject, but uh, as a broad brush <laughs> kind of point, mm-hmm. you know, if you have big groups of organized workers, which is what you had from the 30s to the 70s, you know, auto workers, steel workers, these kinds of large blocks of the economy that were unionized and were really critical to the economy overall, and where the workers had the power to shut and did regularly shut down the entire industry. The, that kind of economic power for workers is likely to manifest in within a kind of larger capitalist economy in the form of inflation. And then there'll be a political struggle over how much inflation property owners, asset owners are willing to tolerate. Because as a general, I mean, this is, again, complicated, but as a general rule, inflation uh, is, is okay or good for people who have debt and bad for people who own assets. So what happened in the 70s, as you said, is, I mean, I actually think the argument that was made by conservative, I'm not a conservative by any means, but the argument that was made by conservatives in the 70s has a kernel of truth, right? That the pow- it was the power of labor that was fundamentally connected to the rise of inflation in that period. And well, you know, I would not have opted for the solution to that challenge that they did, what they then decided to do was to um, push for the Federal Reserve, which regulates the money supply and therefore regulates inflation, the value of the dollar, push for the Federal Reserve to break organized labor. And that's what happened. So starting in 1979, uh, the Fed jacked up interest rates extremely high, which uh, caused massive, basically a kind of localized Great Depression, like in every factory town in America um so I study Pittsburgh that's kind of where my research is located and in Pittsburgh unemployment went up to almost 20% and they leveled these these big groups of organized industrial workers and in doing you know they just closed all their factories over the course of five or six years basically and in the course of doing that they choked off the inflation problem but that then created a new problem as you say um which was that they drove wages down and have basically held 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 wages there since then uh, there've been a couple of brief episodes of wage increases for people at the bottom of the ladder but not not much of any significance since the 1970s which is a pretty amazing thing given that the basic way that capitalism is supposed to work the thing that's supposed to kind of make it legitimate is that you know there's a rising tide that lifts all boats
0: Right. So I'd like to talk about that now, um, the, the crisis of legitimacy. So you talk about the famous economist Paul Samuelson thinking about the problem of inflation and essentially saying, yeah, look, the conservatives in in Chile under Pinochet probably are onto something. You can, you can have a fascist state that keeps wages down. But if we're going to do that here, it's going to look really ugly. We don't have Pinochet style fascism here, and we haven't had that for the last 40 years, but maybe you could describe two things. One, what life has been like for workers here for the last 40 years, and not just in abstract, like, well, here's 20% unemployment in Pittsburgh, but what, for example, in Pittsburgh has life been like for for the working class or the precariat? And two, if there is this crisis of legitimacy, why don't we see many, many uprisings?
1: You know, first of all, let's start with I'll start with Paul Samuelson, since he started the question there. I think it's a very interesting kind of little anecdote. So he, this was like the most mainstream economist of the period of the '50s, '60s, and '70s. He, you know, he wrote the textbook that everyone learned in Econ 101. He was a kind of a liberal, mainstream liberal, uh, Keynesian, and so you know, facing the problem of the '70s, as you say, he said this potential solution that I just described a minute ago of jacking up interest rates really high and leveling organized labor, um, basically what he's trying to say is that would be a political impossibility in this country um, because of the repression that it would require, uh, which would be incompatible with our democratic institutions. And I included that anecdote uh, that you were kind of citing because I think basically he was right that it would require tremendous repression. So, you know, people react to that often, I think, by saying, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. we didn't go the Chile route. And mm-hmm. actually, what I want to say is, mm, don't be so sure that we're not more like Chile, more like a very authoritarian state that implemented this kind of regime than you might think. And so now I'll tell you what that looks like. So first of all, to, to your question, what does 20% unemployment in a place like Pittsburgh mean? I mean, let's be concrete about it. It means the suicide rate doubles. It means that... Um, you know, the number of people showing up to treatment for alcoholism and detoxification rises extraordinarily. It means that um, to the extent that we can measure these kinds of things, rates of depression and anxiety go through the roof. People lose their homes in huge numbers. People show up at domestic violence shelters in huge numbers. So it's a tremendously kind of violent uh, blow to the just to the social fabric at a kind of basic level. Um and um, you know that blow falls on families. Uh, in particular, you know, very often happens that uh, men have lost their job. Oh, here's a good another statistic I think is helpful to think about. Um, there's an incredible study that I cite um, by a couple of economists that was done about 10 years ago where they went through the unemployment insurance application roles from western Pennsylvania. so that's the Pittsburgh steelmaking region in the early 1980s, so in this period when unemployment was very high. And they said, let's look at everyone who had a lot of seniority in an industrial workplace who filed for unemployment in these years and see how long they lived after that. And what they found was that if you were such a worker, right, who with a kind of long seniority in an industrial workplace who had become unemployed in the early 1980s, your chance of death, just like statistically, the chance that you would die in the immediate years afterward, rose 50 to 100% above the norm. So as I said, tremendously mm-hmm. violent blow to mm-hmm. the social fabric, particularly falls in interesting ways on gendered lines. So men lose their jobs in very high numbers, right? This is the kind of death at some level of that kind of male breadwinner economy. And you know this shows up in strains within relationships, right? So when I say something like large numbers of people start showing up at domestic violence shelters, you can think about that. And you know, you might think that divorce rates would go up. There was a big anxiety about that at the time, but actually the household economic unit turns out to kind of be too important. And so typically women just decide to kind of tough it out and try to make it work, which is itself a kind of scary thing to think about what that might mean. And in particular, they also decided that they need to start getting jobs. Uh, although their mothers might not have had a job as adults. You know, maybe you know, if you're a woman in this situation and you're thinking about your mom, you think, well, my mom was a waitress when she was a teenager. Uh, you know maybe she worked as a substitute teacher that one time my dad was laid off but basically she didn't have a career but now I have to so on the one hand you have this kind of flood of people into the labor market seeking work who have not sought it before and people who have been pushed down several levels in the labor market often also so people who have lost those jobs as steel workers who you know now have to take what they can get and that might mean you know you try to work in fast food or, I mean, a lot of these guys have a ton of blue collar skills and they want to try to become an auto mechanic or something like that, but there's no work in that either, you know, painting houses. I mean, people just catch as catch can, especially the men. Um, Women in particular, uh, the care economy, which is things like healthcare, education, social services, childcare, food service, hospitality, which is a low wage sector of the economy and already was kind of set up that way when they start looking, when these, you know, millions of women have to start looking for work. So you have all this happening. And then you have a kind of new policy environment surrounding this and adjusting to this new set of changes to figure out, okay, how can we retain social control over this situation? How can we keep labor markets running smoothly? Um, You know, we've made this decision that we're going to try to transition to a lower wage economy. And this is pretty explicit. The chairman of the Federal Reserve said to Congress on the record, the standard of living of some number of Americans needs to fall. Right. So it wasn't an accident. They knew exactly what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So what what other kinds of policy changes would we need to make that fall work? Right. To make that transition to a lower wage economy work. Well, you know, one thing you have to do, is you have to make it unattractive to be unemployed, right? If you're gonna to try to get people to accept a lower wage economy, then you have to make lo- those low wage jobs a better alternative than scraping by by whatever other means people might find depending on their families and you know the social safety net and maybe illicit and informal economy. So unemployment has to become intolerable for people right under this regime. And how do they do that? Well, uh, they criminalize it. So I think this is the core insight in that Paul Samuelson comment that I think we should take seriously and that people often don't think about. The expansion of mass incarceration is running alongside this entire process almost perfectly in sync. That's not to say there's a kind of conspiracy, right? Where someone like is sitting in an office like rubbing his hands together. Like, yeah, we're gonna build the prisons all over the country. There are versions of that kind of at a local level in certain ways, but, you know, there's kind of sets of local incentives that make that a solution that might be attractive to state legislatures and this kind of thing. Um, But structurally, right, that offers a way to make unemployment extremely unattractive, right? If you are unemployed, the odds that you're going to wind up arrested, imprisoned, or that your kids might statistically start to go way up. As they build the prison system and expand the police forces and you know, uh, start adopting laws like mandatory minimum sentencing and this kind of thing all through this period. So there is an extremely violent, brutal, repressive regime that gets built at the bottom of the labor market. right? And I do think it makes sense to understand that as related to the authoritarian kind of governments that Paul Samuelson was worried you would have to construct to carry out a program like this, right? He was saying, you can't do this without terrorizing people. Well, we did terrorize people, actually, and we continue to. That's one key piece. Another key piece is what's often called welfare reform, uh, which is a long process, really started in the 70s and 80s, uh, but it kind of culminates in 1996. So in the 70s and 80s, it was mainly, there was a lot of experimentation at the uh, state level with kind of trying to cut back social benefits in different ways. And this culminates at the federal level in 1986 when Clinton signs what the, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Something Act, which we call typically welfare reform. And what this did uh, was, in general, kind of place much more tough constraints, narrow constraints on what kinds of social assistance poor people can collect and for how long and what they have to submit to if they're going to collect that assistance. And you know, one point that I make in the article is that the, this new reform of the, of the social welfare system was designed, it, it was operating under the theory that people become poor and irresponsible if they're not formed into kind of normative families. Uh, this was something that they believed as policymakers was that husbands or men and women who have had children together need to be, need to be together as a couple. And if we're not encouraging that, Where then we will be encouraging uh, kind of pathological and deviant behavior. And so social welfare needs to encourage couples to get together or stay together. What that meant was that uh, if you're a woman collecting, uh, it became called TANF at this point, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. Before that, it had been AFDC. Um, But if you're a woman collecting TANF benefits after 1996 and you have children, and you, the father of those children is uh, not in the household, he gains automatic custody rights, regardless of the nature of your relationship. Wow. And this is, remains true to this day. And that's an extraordinary thing when you think about it, right? Because what it means is that whatever reasons this woman might have to not have him in her children's life and in her own life. And again, think about what I just said about domestic violence in this period you know and how it's related to the growth of low-wage work and the loss of stable work none of that matters right she has no she doesn't get to make that decision anymore so I just I'm trying to paint a picture for you of the kind of apparatus of terror that was mm-hmm. constructed uh, to force people to accept low-wage work
0: I know you're at University of Chicago and you know I work at a high school and we are not explicitly in our classrooms our history classrooms like ideological you know so we don't have these kind of issues but i wonder on your on your campus you know your campus is the the site of origin for the chicago boys and they helped construct this apparatus of terror how do you if at all how do you interact with the people in the econ department there who you know are um supportive of these ideas
1: you know we kind of um have different silos. I mean, they have they have their own thing going on. It's a, econ is the biggest major on campus by far, and again, I don't think I've ever met an economist.
0: Okay, all right. <laughs> so I want to come back to I want to come back to the article a bit near the end of the article. You sort of say, look, it's possible that this stimulus that Trump and then Biden pushed, and if Biden can maybe make some of this stuff permanent, like you know these these three hundred dollar checks that are maybe going out indefinitely, hopefully to people with kids this might help create a buffer and that might that might encourage more strikes and develop help develop a, a new labor union or a, a revived the labor movement. but you're skeptical and in part and I'm, I was curious about a, a, this this idea of class formation and you were saying class formation is, is a discontinuous process and that this kind of stimulus doesn't necessarily lead to class formation. So um, what's class formation and what do you mean by that? Sure. Well,
1: class formation, uh, again, you know, much discussed and debated kind of concept, but uh, I think of it as the process by which groups of people, uh, groups of working people, come to see themselves as a group, come to identify their interests with one another, come to see themselves as having shared opponents or enemies, um, come to see themselves as having shared histories and culture. Um, and this would have been a pretty familiar idea if we were talking 50, 60 years ago. I mean, maybe not in the same terms, but you know, there was a kind of recognizable thing that workers in many industrial countries had kind of gone through that made them more similar to each, right? They came from the countryside in Alabama or in Poland, and they, you know, wound up in Chicago or New York and, uh, you know, became factory workers and, you know, had to adapt to living in tenements and, you know, the kinds of culture that they were part of and consumed and the kinds of commodities that they consumed and their leisure activities all transformed through that process. Their family structures transformed through that process. Um, And through all of that, not without difficulty, but through all of that, um, they become able to recognize themselves as having things in common with one another, even potentially across racial lines. That's one of the great achievements of the labor movement in the 1930s was that the Polish worker becomes willing to organize a union together with a black worker from Alabama. Not never easy, but it happened somewhat. And then, you know, once they start to understand one another as having these things in common, they become able to manifest that in solidarity, forming unions and behaving politically as a block. So that's the process basically in a narrow form or in a basic way uh, that I would call class formation, right? It's how a group of people who have a set of jobs come to be a cohesive group of people who behave often self-consciously as a group. And you know, like I say, I think you know, in many, many industrial societies at a previous point in time, even if you wouldn't have used that language, you would, you would, people just got that the you know, they're, they're working class exists because it behaves as a group. And it, mm-hmm. it, by behaving as a group, it shapes society. Now, one effect of all of these processes that we've been talking about, the, the destruction of organized labor, the you know, closing of, of and loss of millions of jobs, the rise of the low wage labor market, has been to disperse what was once relatively cohesive in various ways and to pose a challenge for people who think it matters for democracy and justice to have some amount of working class organization to pose a challenge to try to think about where might where and how might that re-emerge. And part of what I'm trying to say in this article is that it's a mistake that I think people often fall into to expect. working class to behave as a whole really at any point including in that past I was just describing that actually what happens and the way the way the class formation always proceeds is that particular contexts, particular workplaces communities neighborhoods for whatever one reason or another or some kind of set of reasons become favorable if you can kind of think of like a like a petri dish in in a science class right you might create conditions on a petri dish that are favorable to the growth of some kind of substance. But that doesn't mean that you're going to see the entire Petri dish become coated with an even layer of that substance right away, right? What's gonna happen is it's gonna crop up a little bit here, it'll pop up a little bit there. And then the question will be, will that substance continue to grow? Will those little pockets connect to each other? And I think that's the way to think about class formation. So for example, you know, there are, was just, I mean, a couple of days ago, uh, a union ele- kind of historic union election, potentially at Starbucks in Buffalo, New York, uh, three Starbucks, mm-hmm. votes. two out of three seem to have voted for unionization. It's a little bit, the the election is still being litigated and disputed in various ways, but it seems like two out of three voted for unionization. So then we would wanna understand what about Starbucks in general? What about these particular stores made that possible so that we could figure out then uh, how, how and where that might be replicated. And I wanted to kind of go through all of the ways that the last 30 or 40 years have punished and divided the working class and driven down working class confidence in terms of you know, the ability to resist your employer and to fight back against your employer to, make, you know, to soberly look at what are the challenges to doing this, right? What makes it hard? Because I think we often fall into ro- a romantic kind of view that you know, something will sort of just sort of naturally spread like wildfire across the entire country and across the entire working class. And I think you know, it's, it's often much
0: bumpier than that. So the last question, and I've been asking this of all my guests, um, what is, and it doesn't have to directly relate back to, to your article, um, but what is in the world today the thing that makes you, you know, most optimistic? Um, Good question. I mean,
1: I do think that, well, I'm gonna start on a downbeat note, which refers back to the article and I'll I'll turn it around for you. So um, one point that we didn't touch on, which I think is really significant, is that a lot of the new jobs that people have wound up in over the last 30 or 40 years have been in kind of interactive human service contexts, like yourself as a teacher, right? Uh, Or if you think again about uh, someone who works in a nursing home or more to the point, a home healthcare worker, which has been and will continue to be for years, the fastest growing job in America. Um, Now, these are jobs which are labor intensive and which are not really particularly amenable to productivity increase which is the kind of classic thing again, that's supposed to make capitalism work, right? So this, this podcast is for econ students. You probably have encountered the kind of Adam Smith metaphor or example, right? Of a pin factory where, you know, it's better to have each worker making a part of a pin than to have each worker making, it, making a whole pin because uh, that will be more efficient and it'll be better for all the workers and it'll be better for the person buying the pin because the pin will be cheaper. And so they'll buy more pins and then all the workers wages will be better. That fact, that example, doesn't really seem to apply (laughs) to uh, lots of the kind of human service economy, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's teaching, whether it's taking care of old people or sick people or young people, or, you know, various kinds of food service and, and so on. And that poses a real challenge because the basic kind of relationship between employer and employee, what was supposed to make it good and workable was that kind of Adam Smith thing, right? That, Well, every year we get a little more efficient. So the price of our product goes down and more people buy it. And that's a kind of positive sum good for everyone, for the workers, for the owners, for the consumers. If we can't really do that, right, then what it means is that you're going to have, uh, on the one hand, rising prices for a lot of these kinds of human services. And again, think about healthcare, for example, think about higher education. On the other hand, you're gonna have really stiff employer resistance to improving working conditions because there's no kind of growing pie created by more efficient production methods that they can give workers a growing slice of. It's much more of a zero-sum kind of conflict. And again, thinking about higher education where I work, right, there's a huge phenomenon of this in, our, in my industry of, of um, you know, contemporary professors being hired for really, really low pay. I mean, I'm very lucky to have escaped that track. Um, and many industries have their versions of this. So. That seems like bad news, it is bad news. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think one effect that it's having is that it's causing workers in all many, many industries that fit the description I just laid out to start to think about, okay, so we can't really win a ton from our employer by just organizing here at the workplace and directly confronting them. There are limits on how far we can get that way because of the zero sum dynamic. They'll just fight us tooth and nail. Um, so what would we have to do to change the situation that we're in? And that becomes a political problem, right? That becomes teachers having to figure out how to increase the school budget, right? It becomes, uh, nursing home workers having to figure out how to improve health policy. It becomes Uber drivers having to figure out how to regulate the gig economy. And so this kind of structural Problem that workers have faced and will continue to face in the near future, um, that they have wound up in industries that are very hostile to them economically, um, I think is causing, and this is only starting in the last couple of years, I think, but is causing groups of workers to try to build alliances beyond themselves where they can say, you know, teachers can say to students, healthcare workers can say to patients, Um, listen, our interests are actually the same, or at least are closely aligned, right? That you want to go to a hospital that has enough nurses and I don't want to get worked to death. So, you know, let's try to get this bill passed. Let's try to get this person elected. Let's try to um, bring some pressure to bear on the hospital to hire more nurses. And I think that if that trend continues to develop, it's an extremely positive trend because it points toward a world Where workers' organization is not just kind of narrowly self-interested, which is okay, and that's an important part of the labor movement, that workers have to advocate for themselves, but where workers' organization forms a kind of nucleus for a broader kind of movement for like a better and more meaningful democracy.